New trial, new trouble. Prosecutor Hugh Dorsey had promised that if the High Court ever granted Frank the new trial he asked for, he would prosecute the case to the fullest extent. But this time around, it would be with the world watching very carefully. A new judge, jury, and prosecutor with the same physical evidence would probably proceed in much the same way as the first trial. Every court that reviewed the month-long trial found it to have been conducted fairly, and with all eyes on a second trial, Georgia would be on its best judicial behavior. And just like the first, the second would not have gone well for Leo Frank. He probably would have fared much, much worse. This time, Frank's attorneys would have to show the, quote, Negro testimony, end quote, far more respect. Their blatantly racist strategy would have to be retired. The Northern press, which had taken up Frank's cause as a victim of anti-Jewish racial prejudice, could not very well ignore the anti-Black bigotry coming from Frank's own side. Black newspapers and advocacy groups outside Georgia were monitoring the treatment of the Blacks in the case with a jaundiced eye. In any new trial, those Blacks with significant testimony, like James Conley and Newt Lee, would actually have competent attorneys, not only representing them and their interests, but also ensuring that the Frank team's open and abusive race-baiting, a cornerstone of their defense, was severely muzzled. William Burns' bungling on Frank's behalf only added many more felonies to the docket. As Lasker later admitted, quote, by God, end quote, Burns, quote, put in, end quote, much, quote, perjured stuff before we finished, end quote. Should the defense try to introduce any of Burns's, quote, perjured stuff, end quote, it would have been an invitation for the prosecution to air all of Burns's felonies. Certainly, his illegal methods and activities were a matter of public record, so the prosecutors would not even need to wait for a trial to have it all fed to the gathered hordes of international newsmen. It was more likely, not less, that a new Georgia judge would allow the young female factory workers to be more explicit about Frank's offensive behavior. Thus, the more detailed revelations would have a far more damaging effect on Frank's case. The second time around would be disastrous. If Frank's lawyers again refused to cross-examine them or challenge their accounts. In fact, by the end of the first trial, Frank's attorneys conceded in open court the truth of the factory employees' charges. And there was no telling how many more girls and young women might be emboldened to come forward on an international stage. And, of course, they did not need a courtroom to air their negative experiences with Frank. Dorsey had already threatened to unleash, quote, a mass of, end quote, Leo Frank's dark secrets. And the two hired detective firms, the Burns Agency and the Pinkertons, were now estranged from Frank and could easily be called to testify about their intimate knowledge of the investigation. Again, this unfiltered and unstoppable flow of sludge would potentially reach a massive international audience, 
preconditioned by Ox and Lasker to hear of nothing but Frank's innocence, sacrifice, and suffering, and not his management of a factory filled with child laborers working ten-hour days under the constant threat and reality of sexual harassment. And at any new trial, and with the outside world watching, it would be almost impossible for Frank himself to avoid cross-examination by the prosecution, as he did at his first trial. His millions of new minions had been led to believe that his voice had been drowned out by anti-Semitism. So it would have been impossible for him to avoid a direct and sworn interrogation. This time, the three Atlanta daily newspapers would be competing with hundreds of others from all over America, and around the world. Soon, their articles and editorials would ask the same legitimate questions that emerged during and after the first trial. About the planted evidence, including Newt Lee's bloody shirt and changed time card. And about Manola McKnight's and Nina Formby's revealing affidavits. And now, thanks to the William J. Burns fiasco, the prosecutors would have the forged Carter and Roan letters, the open bribery, the poison plot against Conley, and Slayton's incredible conflict of interests. All would become known, and all would tend to point inescapably to Frank's guilt. Certainly, as the details of the Burns operation emerged, so would it be revealed who orchestrated and paid for it all. The reputations of Ox and his New York Times, the prestige of Louis Marshall and the American Jewish Committee, the stature of B'nai B'rith and its brand-new Anti-Defamation League, the eminence of notable supporters like behind-the-scenes financier Albert Lasker, Rabbi David Marks, philanthropist Julius Rosenwald, and banker Jacob Schiff, all of whom had bought into or helped generate the noble Frank narrative would all be scrutinized in any new trial and its accompanying publicity. They had not just supported Leo Frank. Their scorched-earth extra-legal tactics had backfired and instead infuriated white Georgians, not to mention blacks across America. Nearly all institutions of the government, the judiciary, and the press had succumbed to the cash tsunami precipitated by Lasker's corrupt generosity. The crusading Tom Watson and his weekly Jeffersonian were absent from the first trial, but he would have worldwide exposure in a second. And this time, Watson would no doubt be considered the only legitimate voice of the people of Georgia, and neither Frank nor his attorneys were a match for him. Watson had successfully cast the attack on his state of Georgia as a Jewish attack. And by the summer of 1915, Watson and the Jewish publications of the North were in a ferocious battle that threatened to morph into a real Jewish-Gentile confrontation of the European variety. Watson showed no signs of caving in to the intense Jewish pressure. And with his every salvo, his popularity among Georgians soared. He would be champing at the bit for such an opportunity. For the relatively tiny Jewish population in Georgia, a state that had always welcomed them, it was uncharted territory. It was a battle the Jewish people could not possibly win and would be foolish to engage in. 
The unpleasant truth is that there was no scenario the Jewish world could conceive of in which Frank or his carefully crafted image of Jewish persecution could prevail. The convict himself resorted to this unseemly attempt to engineer his own victimhood, with its rank insensitivity to the way in which Mary Fagan perished. Quote, Orderly trial by a jury is one thing, the rank disorder of a lynch-crazy mob is another. But I am confident that the truth cannot be strangled to death. End quote. When it comes right down to it, whoever murdered Leo Frank had many supporters, allies, and cheerleaders from a surprising cross-section of America. The Jewish community's refusal to press for the apprehension or even the investigation of the lynchers raises strong suspicions about their real identity. The day after Frank's murder, the New York Times reported, quote, Mrs. Leo Frank received the news that her husband had been lynched in a manner that led those present to believe that she had been expecting it, end quote. And perhaps she had. Could it be that the Knights of Mary Fagan was invented out of whole cloth and then planted by the New York Times two months before Frank's demise in order that a Gentile group be set up and made responsible for a future crime? The same nefarious forces that planted, quote, anti-Semitism, end quote, in the trial and planted Newt Lee's, quote, bloody shirt, end quote, among all the other, quote, perjured stuff, end quote, admitted to by Lasker, were Frank's likely executioners. Indeed, if Adolf Ox and the New York Times, 900 miles away, claimed to know of a murder plot against their new sacred symbol of anti-Semitism, they certainly did nothing to stop it, or to enhance Frank's security, or to alert authorities responsible for his protection. The alleged knights encountered almost no resistance to their operation to abduct the most important prisoner in the world. Steve Oney is considered by many to be the foremost expert on the Leo Frank case, as his research and thesis are accepted by the ADL and other interested pro-Frank Jewish organizations. As he reflected on the lynching, he made an incredible correlation that carries far more weight than he probably intended. Quote, it's fascinating the way it was planned, the way that seven or eight leading citizens of Marietta put it together and delegated authority down the line and chose a group of lieutenants who actually ran the lynch party. The lieutenants chose the 20 or 30 guys who served as muscle. It was like the raid on Antebi. It was, end quote, a, quote, very well-oiled machine, end quote. Operation Antebi was a hostage rescue mission performed by commandos of the Israeli Defense Force, IDF, at Antebi Airport in Uganda on July 4, 1976. Oni's reference to it is chillingly appropriate. Leo Frank, as a Jewish symbol, could never exist in the same space and time with Leo Frank, the flawed and repulsive Jewish man. And so the man became as expendable to Jewish elites as he was to Georgian Gentiles. Maybe even more so. 
That bleak outlook called into play a little-known option that is afforded to Jews in such a predicament. In Hebrew, it is called Din Moser, quote, law of the informer, end quote, and Din Rodev, quote, law of the pursuer, end quote. And they are concepts found in the Babylonian Talmud. Tractate Sanhedrin, Folio 73a. These are literally contract killings ordered by Jewish authorities against a Jew that is thought to have betrayed or will betray Jewish interests. The Leo Frank case had now involved the highest Jewish authorities in America and put their reputations and their constituencies in league with a truly rogue character who had outlived his symbolic value. The launch of Leo Frank was spectacular, but a crash and burn was imminent and the consequences would be disastrous for the Jewish people. And even though Leo Frank, as president of B'nai B'rith, cannot be said to have deliberately betrayed the Jewish people, his malfeasance had maneuvered them into a compromised position. The Din Rodif, law of the traitor, thus became an attractive option. According to the rabbinical authorities, Frank might have been considered a Rodif, one who has placed Jews in harm's way, and when that occurs, an individual or community is permitted to stop a rodif by any means necessary. In more recent times, scholars have now acknowledged that the 1995 assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was just such a Din Rodif contract murder, ordered by a special court of Israeli rabbis. By conceding to the Palestinians land that many Jews believed was conferred to them by God himself, in Genesis 15.17, Rabin was said to have betrayed the Jewish people. The assassin, rabbinical student Yigal Amir, justified his act on that very basis, telling police that he was acting on the basis of a rabbinical Din Rodif ruling. Quote, Once something is a ruling there is no longer a moral issue, end quote, said Amir. Leo Frank presented the Jews with a, quote, moral issue, end quote, a dilemma not of their choosing. Given the extent to which they went to extract Frank from the justice of the secular courts of Georgia, it may all have been for the purpose of exacting their own, quote, higher, end quote, Jewish justice on the errant Rodif. The facts and circumstances of Leo Frank's lynching lead almost inescapably in that Talmudic direction. Steve Oney's incredibly shrewd observation, that the 1915 raid on Milledgeville was very much like the Israeli raid on Entebbe 61 years later, may be a precise description. A Jewish exodus from Georgia? An important embellishment of the Leo Frank saga is that Jews fled Georgia in large numbers after his August 17, 1915, lynching. A hasty Jewish exodus would certainly seem logical after an anti-Jewish pogrom of the massive proportions so widely claimed. Journalist Howard Simon's take on the aftermath of Frank's demise was typical of the dire accounts. Frank's, quote, Brutal death spooked the Jews of Georgia and far beyond. Many families fled Atlanta, some never to return. 
Others sent their children away. All were afraid that they, too, would be felled by the same recurring hate virus. End quote. Daniel J. Borston, a relative of one of Frank's lawyers, said, quote, There followed in Atlanta one of the worst pogroms ever known in an American city. An unpleasant reminder of the Russia from which, end quote, they, quote, had fled, end quote. The website history.com attaches a number to the alleged phenomenon, stating as a matter of fact, quote, Thousands of Jewish residents in Atlanta were forced to flee the city because police refused to stop the lynch mob, end quote. A cataclysmic event, given that the Jewish population of Atlanta at this time was estimated to be about 7,000. Eli N. Evans, writer of The Provincials, spoke of the grisly lynching of Leo Frank, which he said, quote, put a pall on Jewish life, inducing half the Jewish population to leave Atlanta, end quote. Fear, he asserted, spread throughout the South. Had such a mass flight occurred, it would have been the second mass Jewish exodus from Georgia, the first being in 1740. The English colonial rulers had banned slavery from the colony, a ban that triggered an exodus of both Christians and Jews until only three Jewish families were left in Georgia. The Jews left the colony, according to Rabbi Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, because, quote, Negro slavery was prohibited, the liquor traffic was forbidden, end quote. Jewish winemaker Abraham DeLion said he left for, quote, the want of Negroes, whereas his white servants cost him more than he was able to afford. End quote. It was not until 1749 that Georgia permitted slavery, and that is when Jews returned en masse to stay. By 1771, half of Georgia's 30,000 population were black slaves. And while that slave-based Jewish exodus from colonial Georgia has been well documented, the Leo Frank-based exodus may be as unprovable as the conjured cries of, quote, hang the Jew, end quote. As can be gleaned from the many reports, notices, ads, and articles in the Daily Press, Frank's April 1913 arrest and August 1913 conviction for the murder of the Gentile Mary Fagan caused no distraction in the social, religious, or business life of the Jewish community, and no disruption of their relationships with their Gentile neighbors and customers. A few months after Frank's trial and conviction, Jewish merchant M. Rich heralded his company's 1913 Christmas sales, which would necessarily involve Christian Gentile customers, saying the volume, quote, was more than satisfactory, end quote. Essig Brothers reported that, quote, business was great, end quote. And Jacob's Pharmacy said extra employees were needed to handle the holiday rush. One might expect the many Jewish businesses in Georgia to face collapse and ruin in the aftermath of the Frank trial. The front page of the January 4, 1914 issue of the Atlanta Journal reports that the Marcus Loeb Company built a brand new 
42,000-square-foot building for its manufacturing operations and its, quote, 300 operators, end quote. That same issue reported that the Hirsch brothers had joined forces to combine their grocery and tobacco businesses. Lewis Hirsch claimed that 1913 generated the, quote, largest sales of any year, end quote, in his 14-year career. He expected 1914 to be, quote, unusually successful, end quote, in Atlanta. Next to that story was a photograph of the entire sales force of the Rosenfeld Company, with all their names listed underneath. They had just enjoyed, quote, one of the jolliest affairs ever held at Atlanta's Standard Club, end quote, the foremost Jewish social club in the South. The dinner, quote, was in celebration of the close of a successful year, end quote, 1913, quote, for the company, end quote, which supplied home furnishing goods throughout the South. The newspapers reported on the burial of J.W. Hirschfeld, which was attended by his brethren of the Free Sons of Israel and Frank's own clergyman, Rabbi David Marks, just six months after the guilty verdict. The journal announced that a large audience had heard a lecture on, quote, Judaism within and without, end quote, delivered by, quote, the unusually gifted, end quote, Dr. H. Yud. Noted cartoonist and humorist Rube Goldberg actually came into Atlanta for an appearance, and the journal headline of January 5, 1914, announced, quote, Goldberg ready to uncork barrels of fun, end quote. Goldberg's cartoons were featured prominently in nearly every issue of that paper, and often on the front page, sometimes on the very same pages covering news of the Leo Frank affair. When Goldberg arrived, the paper reported, quote, the sun shone a little brighter, end quote, and, quote, the Negro porter's face was cracked two feet wide, where his mouth should have been. He, end quote, Goldberg, quote, will also be wined and dined by the newspaper fraternity and given the glad hand everywhere, for if there is one fellow genuinely and universally popular, it is Rube, and we want him to know it, end quote. In none of these cases was there any mention of anti-Jewish sentiment or trepidation about, quote, anti-Semitism, end quote among the Jews themselves. Apparently, no Jews had fled, were fleeing, or were planning to flee from Atlanta. Miss Marion Goldsmith hosted a, quote, beautiful spring luncheon, end quote, with cakes, flowers, and fruit baskets at her Peachtree Street home. She wore, quote, a beautiful morning toilet, end quote, costume, quote, of blue taffeta and maline. End quote. Not your standard refugee attire. To top it off, in March of 1914, less than a year after the murder of Mary Fagan and while their leader, Leo Frank, sat in a prison cell on death row, the Grand Lodge of B'nai B'rith held its 40th convention, attracting to Atlanta 70, quote, of the most prominent Hebrews, end quote, and their friends and families from all over the South. In his well-received address, Mayor Woodward expressed his friendship to the Jews and pledged, quote, 
to assist the order in any way possible, end quote, according to the Atlanta Journal report. So the 1913 trial and conviction of Frank produced no exodus. But the case dragged on for two more years, culminating in the lynching of Leo Frank on August 17, 1915. And here again, little evidence supports the shocking tales of Jewish trauma and suffering. Quite the contrary, the pro-Frank Atlanta Journal reported in its August 29th edition that the Marietta police actually added 15 officers to its ranks after the lynching because officials had received letters from supporters of Leo Frank, quote, threatening various sorts of vengeance because Frank was lynched, end quote. Eight, quote, suspicious, end quote, men thought to be associated with those threats were rounded up and, quote, invited to leave, end quote, the city limits by police. The report did not disclose the men's religious affiliation. The only Frank-related violence appears to be the episode when a Jewish store owner named Joseph Sokolow struck and wounded a man named James Lee, who had shown a photo of Frank's lynched body in the store. If any Jewish family or enterprise should have faced the wrath of a bloodthirsty anti-Semitic mob, it was the Montaugs, who owned the National Pencil Company, where the murder of Mary Fagan occurred. They were seen as having countenanced an unsafe environment, where teenage Gentile girls were in constant sexual peril from their employer, whom the Montaugs had installed and seemed to be protecting at all costs. But this item nevertheless appeared in the Atlanta Journal just 33 days after Frank's lynching. Quote, The firm, end quote, Montauk Brothers, quote, reports that its mail orders are still coming in large quantities, and that indications are that the people of the country are needing goods and needing them at once, end quote. All the Atlanta dailies were filled with advertisements from Jewish-owned businesses, without fail or interruption. None of them chose to use their paid space in the newspapers to make any statement at all about the, quote, injustice, end quote, they faced as Jews or to simply withdraw their ads or close their accounts in protest. Atlanta Journal's Post-Lynching View of Jewish Life in the weeks and months following the August 17th lynching of Leo Frank, the social and business pages of the Atlanta Journal newspaper show a Jewish community at ease and involved in Georgia's social life and community affairs. August 1915 The week after Frank's murder, the Goldsteins announced the December wedding of their daughter Bess to Ralph Lippman, to be held in Atlanta. The United Hebrew School invited the public to a, quote, musical program, end quote, held at the Jewish Educational Alliance Building, which was to be addressed by, quote, the rabbis of the various synagogues of the city, end quote. This notice was positioned next to a large ad for Jacob's Pharmacy. September 1915. Will and Mac Hirschberg returned to Atlanta from a successful sales trip through North Carolina. 
An article on the same page that matter-of-factly reported a Tennessee lynching of a black man trumpeted the fact that Albert Greenberg, quote, the most popularly known prescriptionist in the state of Georgia, end quote, would be joining the staff at Jacobs Pharmacy, where he would no doubt, quote, make a friend of every man he meets, end quote. The paper reported that the H.L. Singer Company had increased its delivery facilities to handle increased orders. J.M. Frankel, the, quote, swell social leader, end quote, of the Rosenfeld Company, had just returned from California. According to the journal, quote, he declares he had the best time of his life and saw marvelous things, end quote. Mr. L. R. Lebsky came back to Atlanta and to his job at Rosenfeld, quote, after a pleasant vacation, end quote, of fishing and swimming. The Atlanta Zionist Society announced that its music program would be held at the Jewish Educational Alliance. Harry Edison announced that he would open a new, quote, cut-rate, end quote, shoe store. The journal informed Atlanta that all the synagogues in the city were preparing for Rosh Hashanah, and it listed the other Jewish holidays that would soon be celebrated in Atlanta. On September 7th, the paper reported that Joe Jacobs came to Athens and gave a banquet for his boyhood friends. The Jews announced that their sermons for the Jewish New Year would be a call for peace in the world and a fundraiser for their brethren overseas. Jews in prison were excused from labor on the Jewish holiday and pastored to by Leo Frank's own rabbi, David Marks. The local Atlanta election, it was found, fell on a Jewish holiday, and so an effort was made to change the Atlanta law, not the Jewish law, to enable Jews to vote. And Jews were respectfully asked by the fire commissioner to be careful with their use of candles during the holiday celebrations. Hundreds of employees of Rich's department store, the largest Jewish business in Atlanta, were pictured in the September 19th issue of the Atlanta Journal. Also, the Atlanta Zionist organization held its third annual Sukkot dance. October 1915. A. W. Rosenfeld reported a positive business outlook and planned to double the size of one of his window shade-making divisions. The paper reported that Syme Einstein left with his son for New York, but it was only to buy goods for a new store they intended to open in Atlanta, not to flee. Cotton magnate Oscar Elsus felt comfortable enough with Atlanta's court system that he used it to file a lawsuit against another Jew, Nathan Wolf, for $2,000 in damages for an auto accident he said was Mrs. Wolf's fault. Jacob's Pharmacy, the Jewish business that Leo Frank said he visited on the day of the murder, reported that it was setting sales records for the drug Tanlac at its 11 Atlanta stores. The paper noted that Rabbi Haman Solomon of the Washington Street Synagogue, quote, will deliver an interesting sermon, end quote, on the subject, quote, why some people commit treason, end quote. November 1915. The journal reported that E. M. Hirschberg was reappointed for the fourth time to be the editor of the Macon County Citizen newspaper. Riches hired a, quote, corset, end quote, 
expert from Chicago to help Southern women obtain the proper fit. Frank's employer, Montauk Brothers, appears again in an ad to offer to entertain a, quote, large number, end quote, of merchants that were arriving in Atlanta. Later in the month, a Montauk representative cautioned buyers to get their holiday orders in soon, as business was brisk. Readers were informed that two of Montauk's salespeople, S.F. and Leopold Hine, had spent Thanksgiving at the Atlanta home of their parents. Leonard Jacobus was likewise back home in Atlanta from southern Georgia, having brought back to his employer, F.W. King and Company, quote, glowing reports of great prosperity prevailing in that section, end quote. Congratulations were expressed for the, quote, splendid work, end quote, of the local leader of the Atlanta chapter of the Associated Advertising Club, Frank E. Lowenstein, after achieving a national position. That article is directly below a report of the first meeting of 15 members of the reborn Ku Klux Klan atop Stone Mountain, a meeting where, significantly, neither Leo Frank, Mary Fagan, nor the Knights of Mary Fagan are mentioned. December 1915 The Jewish Progressive Club elected its new leaders, who were anxious to move into their brand new $30,000 building, $730,000 today. This announcement is on the same page as an advertisement for the Jewish-funded Ku Klux Klan recruitment movie, The Birth of a Nation. All these examples demonstrate that the reports of anti-Jewish violence and rioting are unsupported by the extant reportage in and around Atlanta, Georgia. The dailies show that not only did Jews seem to have comfortably maintained good relations with the Gentiles, but also Jewish businesses continued their advertising accounts with the papers without interruption. In the end, no Jews were forced to leave the city, the state, or the South as a reaction to the Frank case. In fact, a Jewish leader named Victor Kriegshaber, who was a member of the grand jury that indicted Leo Frank, was elected president of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce just five months after Frank's lynching. The New York Times, the primary promoter of the anti-Semitism myth, cited Kriegshaber's election as conclusive proof that Atlantans felt no antagonism toward Jews. Under the headline, quote, PR, end quote, the Times wrote, All, quote, can now point to a fact showing conclusively that the bitter rage of which Frank was the unfortunate victim was not the result of his race, but of the peculiar conditions which existed in Atlanta prior to the murder of Mary Fagan and other conditions which arose during the trial of Frank. End quote. Dr. Albert Lindemann concluded that, far from Jewish panic and mass exodus, quote, Jews continue to move into the city in numbers no less impressive than before the Frank affair. End quote. Once again, Harry Golden appears to be the source for the unsubstantiated claims of a mass exodus and anti-Jewish boycotts, but Stephen Hertzberg corrects him, asserting that, quote, there was no dramatic exodus or panic, end quote. 
A study by the Goldring slash Woldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life found that, quote, despite the fears stemming from the Frank lynching, Atlanta's Jewish community continued to grow, from 4,000 Jews in 1910 to 12,000 by 1937, end quote. That is, there was a net population gain of 300 Jews per year in Atlanta, not a decline. Frank's wife, Lucille, buried her husband in Brooklyn, and then returned to Atlanta. In the spring of 1916, she left for Memphis, Tennessee, to take a position as manager of her brother-in-law's clothing shop. She returned to Atlanta in 1921, quote, where she took a job at one of the city's best fashion salons, end quote. Her, quote, Negro driver chauffeured her to her bridge games and other appointments. End quote. Be with us again next time when we present the next chapter of The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, Volume 3. The Leo Frank Case, The Lynching of a Guilty Man. Prepared by the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam, Chicago, Illinois. Copyright 2016 by Latimer Associates. All rights reserved. Published in audiobook form by the American Mercury with permission of the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam.